the first question is, is this really what you want to do? Are you really prepared to do the work it takes to grow a practice? Because even if they have a phenomenal marketing team, at the end of the day, once the patient enters that door and starts interacting, a big part of what retains the patient and the practice is who you are. On today's episode of Inside Reproductive Health, I speak with Dr. Cindy Duke from the Nevada Fertility Institute. We talk about a number of things like the difference between entrepreneur and influencer and leader and influencer and what it's like to start a de novo fertility clinic inside a large fertility network. Before we get into that conversation with Dr. Duke, the shout out for today's episode is dedicated to the folks at Strong Fertility. I don't know them super well. It's Dr. Queenan, Dr. Hoger at all. I don't even know if I'm saying their names correctly, but Dr. Duke and I talk a lot about Rochester, about some of those markets. And she gives a shout out to the program at University of Rochester Medicine. So I felt it befitting to dedicate the shout out to them. Now for my conversation with Dr. Duke, if you've thought about either starting your own program or what it's like to start a de novo program, what type of entrepreneurial talent is required and how that's different from being an influencer and how those things merge, then please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Cindy Duke. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Dr. Duke, Cindy, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Hello, welcome, welcome, and thank you for having me. I came to know about you from Dr. Harriton's program uh, a few months ago in summer of Mm -hmm. 2020, which was directed to fellows, REI fellows, and explored different career paths for them, and then Anyone that has more than a couple letters after their name, I'm, I'm interested in. <laughs> and so uh, anytime I see an MD, MBA, I usually try to bring them on the show. When I see an MD, PhD, I'm interested in. With you, you have an MD, PhD, and uh, you don't work in academics. So I would just often assume that someone with that, career, with that academic past would mm-hmm. pursue a career within academic medicine, working in an REI division in some hospital system or some university system. That wasn't the case for you. So, but but let's let's start maybe with just a bit of background of why you went both uh, why you went both the MD and the PhD route, and then we'll go into how you went down your career path. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, I always intended to be a physician scientist, and. Um, I entered medical school with every intent to do a PhD such that I applied only to MD PhD programs and was accepted to the NIH funded medical scientist training program. I did my MSDP training at University of Rochester in upstate New York. I spent eight years there. Um, Fun story, when I entered medical school, I thought I was going to become a pathologist. So a lab science person, which is kind of ironic given that 
I ended up with a career working on the exact polar opposite of the medical spectrum, which is starting and forming life as opposed to the person examining cause of death, etc. Um, but I fell in love with women's health and OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology infertility while a medical student. I had the opportunity to rotate in OBGYN actually in my first year of med school. And I was assigned to work actually at the resident clinic but the resident I was supposed to work with had an emergency. And so in sort of a scramble to place me, they sent me to the fertility clinic there at University of Rochester. And I met people like Dr. Queenan and I just fell in love with the specialty. I saw that That's they were able fertility. to- Yes, strong fertility. Yes, at University of Rochester. And, um, you know, it was, for me, it was like the perfect melding of all the things I was interested in. I'm someone who- loves to use my hands and I realized that they did a lot of stuff themselves they were still operating not many REIs operate but I saw my first model of a fertility specialist was there in Rochester and they weren't only doing assisted reproductive technology and just the general things that you think a fertility doctor does but they also were very much strong academicians who did surgery and so I started just talking to them about that, talking to Dr. Queenan, and he was very supportive. So were other members of the division. And so I always kept that in the back of my mind as I continued through medical school. I, you know, after two years of doing my MD training, being the MSTP program, you then go off to graduate school to complete your graduate work. So I spent four years working on my PhD, which on the way to getting the PhD, you get a master's degree. My PhD was in microbiology and immunology with a focus on virology. And so I spent my four years working on human viral vaccine design and development and testing them in small um, mammals, including mice and um, you know, primates. And so I spent four years doing that, but Rochester is so unique in their MSTP program in that you can also design what they call your longitudinal clinical rotations during your four years. So I spent my four years rotating through all the clinics I was interested in and the specialties I thought would be of interest given my own um, desires, which is I entered medical school as a biochemistry major undergrad. So I was always interested in the chemistry and science of how the body's messaging functions. And so I rotated through the endocrine clinic because I was studying um, HIV and HIV, other viral um, things that infect humans and designing viral vectors. I also worked in the infectious disease clinic, rotating with a few really amazing people, including, you might know, Dr. Luque, Amneris Luque, who was pretty special when I was there. So I did a lot of those things, pediatric oncology, all the things I thought I could potentially be interested in to make sure I wasn't pigeonholing myself with what I already knew. I liked women's health and infertility. And by the time you, I got so back you to- You knew that you wanted to be a, a, a scientist and a, a oh, yeah. medical physician from the beginning. You get exposure to REI early mm -hmm. on. You have a, a lot of exposure throughout. But, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but then I, it seems to me, like, especially now, you know, with, with, with COVID going on that 
wow, we've got an REI and a virologist. If you were in academic yes. medicine, they would be like, let's get Dr. Duke on this study to, to see. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I'm still actually doing research. Yeah, I'm actually still doing research, which is what's cool. And, you know, I jumped ahead to say that that was one of the things that let me know I could easily go into what some will call private practice. You know, I'm still very much involved with resident learning training. I still work with a number of co-investigators on, you know, research projects. Um, yeah, I think I'm the only REI who's also a virologist in the United States of America. That's pretty interesting to say, but um, well, I'm really did, I mean, so you, you mentioned that you've got research as part of your career now, but but why didn't yeah. you end up going into an REI division or 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 a virology division or an immunology division? I looked, I looked at all up? options. I yeah, I looked at all options. I think what was nice was having all this training meant that I could look at all the different avenues. So when I was finishing up my fellowship, I was looked. I looked at academic sort of the old joint at REI division. I looked at industry, which you know just go straight and work with companies like say Merck, Pfizer, um, Roche. These are all companies I interviewed with. I looked at straight private practice, and as I looked at everything, I realized that I had an opportunity to really create something of my own, where I can still achieve all of that. The truth is also, if we're talking to most academicians right now, and I really study the academic model, in terms of most of the research that's happening nowadays as it relates to the off field, a lot of it is actually coming out of the hybrid practices, meaning they have an affiliation with academics, but they're actually functioning out of the private practice side of the field. And, you know, I... I'm the first to tell people, I really believe there's no longer a very defined academic path in the world of REI or a defined private path. I think there is tons of space for hybrid. And you look at the world of, you know, the EVs of the world, the RMA, New Jersey's of the world, the um, shady groves of the world. A lot of the research that's actually driven the field forward is happening at these hybrid type practices in the United States and outside. So for me, it wasn't a hard choice because I wasn't choosing really. It's, you know, you look at the people who are even in academics today, many of them were actually out in private practice and return to academics as their careers grow. So I've never felt like I was, you know, somehow locking myself out of one to choose another. And I still don't feel that way. There's the, the hybrid model, and then you can you can stratify it even further because what would have meant private practice 20 years ago can be stratified even further today between network or independently owned, et cetera. You are at the helm of Nevada Fertility Institute in Las Vegas. Is, that's a member of the Prelude Inception Network. Is that right? It is now, yes. It didn't start out that way, correct. So... I started this clinic, we started as part of the Vivera network. Um, so we've certainly seen a number of acquisitions from the network management side, which is we've moved from Vivera to Prelude and now Inception slash Prelude. Um, so yeah, that's also an interesting aspect that I'm happy to talk about. Is when you started, sometimes, and for those listening that are, are sort of Curious about how this all starts. Sometimes networks acquire clinics. Sometimes they start them de novo, which means bringing a brand new lab and a brand new clinic to a market and building it from zero. This is de novo. 
yours was de novo with with starting with Correct. Rivera. Is that right? Correct. Yes. So the way it worked, basically, I reached out. I started reaching out to a number of groups across the country. So around my second year of fellowship, heading into my third, as I prepared to start interviewing. And like I said, I interviewed very broadly because I knew what I was looking for for Cindy, as opposed to, I wasn't interviewing, looking just at what people were looking for in an applicant. And so somewhere around mm, my third month into doing interviews, I realized that, you know, a lot of the questions I'm asking of practices and asking of industry and asking of established, uh, academic divisions versus private is they're all things that only I could create if I could start a practice myself. And so I started reaching out to a number of groups. It's ironic because one of the groups I reached out to in the beginning was uh, Inception's predecessor or Aspire. But I reached out to a number of groups. I talked to at the time there was a partnership between Shady Grove and RMA. It was short lived, but there was the Fertility Associates partnership. I talked to a number of different groups and ultimately settled with uh, Vivera at the time because one, the markets I was interested in, they were interested in. The model I was looking to start, they were very much in tune with that, which is I get to build my clinic. I get to build it out the way I'd like to manage and practice it. And so that's where I went. We went with Vivera, which was just ironic to see us end up still ending up being a part of Prelude and now Inception. The, on the entrepreneurial scale of zero to 100, on the 100 end, you might have someone that is building clinics all over the country that doesn't, all over the world maybe, that doesn't even need to see patients themselves or want to because they just want to hire docs, build offices, build labs, scale the system. Uh, on a zero, you might have someone that says, don't even bring me into a business meeting. I just give me my patient load and I, I want to put in my hours, see my patients serve my cases very well, and then go home. And uh, so where does someone that is, is starting a, a de novo center for and with, I should say, with another network, where do they fall in that? And what, what, what's unique to that? Well, I think, you know, you could fall as 50-50. Some people probably would be 75-25. For me, I'm pretty hands-on from the entrepreneurial side, which I think also boded very well for my practice when all the transitions were happening because my clinic can continue to function on our side because I was so hands-on. And so, you know, I was hands-on from the moment of design all the way to staffing, to hiring, to determining salaries, all that stuff. That was me involved with that. Um, marketing, you know, when there were budgetary constraints as certain uh, mergers and so forth were going on, um, there wasn't a whole lot of marketing funds allocated. So I did my own marketing. I can say with pride that I took the helm and marketed social media. We, you know, were a de novo practice in a city that I wasn't born or raised in. And we were still able to establish a firm footprint and name recognition because I took it upon myself to head out there and just market my practice. And so I would say in my case, I know it's probably more like 90-10 in terms of entrepreneurial, but I grew up in an entrepreneurial family as well. So I'm not here to tell anyone that you have to be very entrepreneurial to do what I did. 
I think, you know, there's some people for whom they also come into it as a partnership within a network, which is they'll have a family member or a trusted business partner or someone who look at the business side while they start the practice or they'll just focus on the clinical. I think, you know, what's important is for people to know that you can have different ratios and still make it a success. And for me, I'm a very hands-on person. And I, like I was mentioning, I discovered that as I embarked on the interview process is I liked being hands-on. As a fellow at Yale, I was that fellow who wanted to know how our practice was running. How were we making money? How were we getting reimbursed? That sort of thing. And so it depends on who you are, but I don't think it takes one personality type at all. What is that other 10 worth? You said on entrepreneurial scale, you might be a, you might be a 90. So why not say forget I'm doing the staffing I'm doing the marketing I'm doing uh you know I'm, I'm setting this vision why even bring someone else in that can that can mess yeah. up my vision or 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 even that I have to split with or right or any for number me, of things if that's the case yeah for me the I was coming straight out of fellowship and so I really felt that I needed to have sort of as a team member as a partnership people who have done it before. Now, Vivera had only had one other de novo clinic. And so we did discover a lot of learning things along the way, which I think we learned together. You know, state of Nevada, for example, is very unique in startups. So we discovered that. We discovered a lot of things, but I did want that whole, okay, there are people who know how to build. There are people who know how to do some of the day-to-day financial aspects so that we can hit the ground running. And that was especially important to me. You know, if I were someone who had already been practicing solo for a while, maybe I would have done it differently. But I would say that was a big consideration for me as I was coming out of fellowship. And I wanted to make sure that there was no stone left unturned in the theoretical side of it. So I, whether this option is actually widely available to a lot of fellows, or maybe it's just sometimes and a fellow says, it might be with or close to one program talking to them and say, okay, you guys are in, well, let's just pretend you guys are in Dallas, I'm just making yeah. it up, but mm-hmm. I want to go to San Diego. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I'll hear them say, uh, well, the Dallas group offered to, to start a new place in San Diego and have me run. Right. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if how, how serious that often always is, but let's pretend this is an option that's widely available to fellows or, or younger docs that are thinking about leaving cities. Or, and you interviewed with, or I guess you should say you courted or, or had them court you, however you you look at the the process of a number of different networks you cho- you ended up choosing one what should people consider when they're having this conversation with potential networks to go start a de novo clinic for yeah to be clear i was not courted i had to reach out to everybody nobody you were, courted me. you were doing the, the court yeah i i did the outreach um I think that's actually a conversation that people need to have because I think a lot of the practices out there, the established networks only will court, if they courted new fellows, they tended to be male. I'll be honest. They tended to court male fellows. They didn't think to court female fellows. Um, They certainly weren't thinking to court a fellow of color. I I can say that with confidence. I know they'll agree because they didn't. Um, Some of them weren't very excited when I 
approached them and told them my idea and my thought. They just didn't, they hadn't envisioned it. It wasn't a thought. Um, but if you are interested, I would say, um, based on my own experience, you have to be front footed about it. And you reach out to people and you tell them what your thoughts are. It's good to have your, what I call your no and your yes list. Meaning for me, I had a sun list. So I had a certain list of cities and locations that I was interested in. And I approached the different groups with that first and foremost, which is these are the places where I can see myself. And I consider them for a number of reasons, you know, size of city, diversity of city, proximity to my own family, um, languages spoken. Those were things that I looked at when I was talking to them about different cities. But I think you really need an introspective search before you approach places about starting a new practice because the first question is is this really what you want to do are you really prepared to do the work it takes to grow a practice because even if they have a phenomenal marketing team at the end of the day once the patient enters that door and starts interacting a big part of what retains the patient and the practice is who you are and so that's a very important consideration. The other is recognizing that you will learn as you go. And, you know, you describe the entrepreneurial scale from zero to 100. Well, I think there are some people for whom their thought of entering practice is I enter practice, I get a fixed sum, that's how much I get paid and I go home and the rest of the time is my life to do what I like to do. For others, it's, yeah, I'd like to build something and build a legacy for others, it's I'd like to build something clinically, but I have no interest in the business side. It's really important to know all those um, and know upfront because that's important. Um, for me, I had a PhD as well, so I understood the lab side of things. I was very open and direct about laboratory studies and work. And so, you know, I also had no problem becoming my lab director. I think that's a question that people also have to ask is if you're starting a de novo, particularly if it's not a satellite office, meaning you don't have one central lab somewhere, then you also need to have that conversation. And, you know, I have this conversation now over the last four years with a number of people who've since gone on to start their own practices or join networks and start a new um, location for a network. And I think the biggest, biggest thing here is overcoming the fear. I think for fellows, especially a lot of what we're taught in our traditional fellowship is you can't start anything. You can't run a practice. And we aren't really taught the business side of medicine, nor are we encouraged to learn the business side of medicine. And so for most people, what I've discovered is more fear of starting something they were never told they could do. It's not that they can't. Most people can when they're put to the metal. It's being able to believe you can do it. Yeah. I think that that yes, no list is not just helpful for if you want to start a de novo. It's, that's what you need for any deciding any next step of your career. And I call it must haves and nice to have. Yeah. Um, nice to haves are the things that if everything else was met, it wouldn't matter mm -hmm. if it was on there or not. The must haves Correct. are even if if all of the other things were met, if this one thing isn't met, then it's no good. That's a must have. And so I think that 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 as and what you described as some of the some of the pillars that people should have in in judging your yes no list is is useful for for everyone. Mm -hmm. So 
you talked about it can be a bit of where it is a lot of work. Even if you have a great network helping you get started, you're still the captain of the ship and you're still bringing this all to existence. Mm -hmm. And that made me think of something I wanted to talk to you about, which is the dynamic between influencers and leaders. And Brett Weinstein has a podcast and one of his shows was uh, an intellectual roundtable, And I'll have Caitlin link that in the show notes for anybody who's into philosophy, but he's talking about the difference between leadership and influencers. And he feels that one of the reasons why we have so many challenges in our country is because we have a deficit of leaders and a surplus of influencers. And you're in a position where you're both. You are the captain of your ship at Nevada Fertility Institute. You built this thing up. You, you, you hired the people. You put in the operational systems. You gave the direction on the lab because of your PhD background. That's leadership. And then you're also an influencer. You've got a big following on social media. You have your own website. I think you write for publications like Refinery29. Is that right? Yes, so I work with Refinery29. Um, I'm a featured writer now with Medium, uh, Forbes Business Council. I joined, and so I write there too. Yep. Do you perceive a difference between influencership and leadership? You know, I think now I do. In the beginning, I didn't actually think there was a difference. I thought all leaders became influencers by default. And I certainly over time have come to realize that some people can be leaders, but not be very good influencers and vice versa. You know, I would say, yes, everybody now calls me a medical influencer and a female entrepreneurial influencer, et cetera. And I wear it proudly and I take it seriously, which is I do believe that my day-to-day, how I deport and comport myself actually might be influencing someone who was on the fence about a thought process, whether it be a business idea, the idea clinically to, you know, we know the face of medicine is changing. We know the face of healthcare is changing. And yet there are a lot of people who have an interest in becoming leaders who don't feel like they're represented and they're afraid to take that step to a leadership in terms of traditional definition of leadership. And so I've become an influencer in that regard, which is by seeing me do it, by seeing me happy at it. And I am, I'm truly happy. I don't have regrets about the path I chose or the way it's evolving. And it's important to emphasize the evolution of it is I think by showcasing what I've done and how I've done it and how I've navigated the path um, to my journey has influenced many others to at least be brave and take that step forward, whether it be simply deciding, you know what, I can become the director at my practice, the group, my practice group. I can take that step. I can launch out and maybe start becoming a blogger. I can start, you know, just talking about fertility and medicine on social media. You know, unfortunately for a lot of us, when we were training, we were told that social media was scary. You have to stay away from social media. Doctors shouldn't be there. You can't talk about medicine. You're just setting yourself up for liability. But 
as we all know now, social media is becoming a really important toolkit mm -hmm. for the practice, whether you're academic or private practice. Um, writing about my experiences has been phenomenal, but not just for those who are looking to work in the field, but patients I've discovered. My patients find me that way. Many patients come to us from outside of the city of Las Vegas and they come because of that influence. They find me because of that influence or their family members or friends say, you've got to talk to her because of that influence. I think your, your role as an influencer is given credibility by your role as a leader. And I'm talking about you specifically. I, I also mm -hmm. think that's probably a generally applicable principle, but one of the biggest problems that I have with influencership is there's so many damn people out there talking about a whole bunch of stuff that they've never done or never haven't done, done enough mm -hmm. reliably. And, Correct. and so until you've made 10,000 sales calls, don't tell me about how to, don't, don't tell me about the principles of, of sales, of, sales. Oh, yeah, yes. helping the customers until you've actually done it and you can describe the nuance and the, the challenge of Correct. bringing it to bear. Don't tell me about mm -hmm. that. Don't tell me about hiring people and building a company culture if you've never sat down and Yes. Just someone, if you've never gone mm -hmm. through the arduous process of waiting to find the right person, an interview Correct. after an interview. And um, which so is not easy at all. It's a very special skill. And I'm glad you brought that up because, yes, it's a very special skill and understanding dynamic. It also means understanding people. You know, you can have someone who on paper seems like the perfect match. And then you meet them for a couple interviews and you start realizing, ooh, no, not because culture is critical. You know, you may have someone who on paper is ideal for the job description, but not the culture, but and vice versa. You may have someone who culturally is a fit, but skill wise won't work. And it doesn't always come out right away and these are mm -hmm. these are things mm -hmm. that you find out from actually doing and i don't know Correct. i wonder if this is true for you but but actually starting a company actually managing a team actually uh creating systems and it has taught me to shut my mouth about things yes. that, that i don't know that much about is do you, do you find that at all i agree no you learn to shut your mouth you learn also to really become and use patience and your emotional intelligence, right? You know, you, you can't come into this with hubris. If you do that, you're destined to actually, not necessarily fail, but you're gonna struggle a whole lot more than you need to. Because one of the things that I really, I'm very proud about with my practice, and you know, we've been open now four years this November, and we have people who've been with us who it's gonna be four years for some, for the oldest person, she's going to be four years here in February. And, you know, the big thing that I noticed is allowing them to feel like they have a say in the practice, in the growth, in the things that work and not making sure they know you're approachable. It's not your way or the highway kind of culture. And that's how things grow because they're the ones who are going to come to you and say, you know, Dr. Duke, in my case, um, I just went to like one of my staff was like, I just went to a doctor's office for another specialty, yada, yada. And there's this thing that they did that I really liked. Can we start that here? And it's been just amazing allowing people to know that they could do that. We've had staff members who brought in other staff members because they were somewhere, they met someone and they're like, you know, I think this person would be perfect for what we're doing in our growth. 
and it's it's so important it's something that I don't know maybe there are textbooks that can teach that but for me a lot of it is what you call on the job learning you learn it as you go along tying back to what we were originally talking about starting your own system all of this is important to you you're building this culture uh, you chose the original network that you chose to start a de novo clinic with because of reasons of them buying into your vision for a culture. Your network has changed a few times, but it's not the only one. There's lots of networks that have changed yes. hands uh, multiple times in the last five or six years. And I bet right. you that we're going to see that happen a lot more in the next five or six. I years. expect to. Yes. So how do you navigate those changes? Like, Hey, I made the deal with, with Sally and Rick. And now Johnny and Sue are coming in, and yeah. uh, and and they've got a bit different. Bit. How do you, how does someone yeah. navigate those changes? Well, I would tell you, you know, as someone who's watched three transitions occur, I would say that the successful parts of the transitions always worked when the new people coming in actually did come in and say, it's my way or the highway. Um, you know, coming in and understanding what works, what doesn't work, listening, asking, what do you need? Um, I think that is a, a true sign of leadership. I think another true sign of leadership is for you, the person who's on the ground. So if you're the director, the lab director, equity owner, I think being equity owner helps because people, everybody's invested in listening to you. But even if you weren't, I think, you know, it's more that mutual respect and recognizing um, what each person's role is. And I have to give credit to every single transition. I've never had someone approach me with any level of disrespect that didn't value my place in the practice or my place in understanding my market, understanding how I built this and who my patients are. And I think that's another interesting thing about a de novo practice and then changes. The truth is the new people coming in are actually reliant on you, the person on the ground, to describe what works and what doesn't work. And so staying quiet is possibly only going to hurt your practice unless your practice was already suffering, then maybe you're hoping for a change. But if not, then it's important that they're be opening to they're they're being open to listening what works and you definitely sharing what works and what doesn't work about your practice. Because network or not, each market is different. Each market is, is different. Each patient population is different. Would you bail or do you have any kind of escape plan if it wasn't? If there was a transition that was like, this isn't what I bargained for, would you, would you wash yeah. your hands? Well, I think it's possible, but I've also created enough um, contractual and legal frameworks that I don't think that will happen to me. I wouldn't have to bail on my on something I've grown, you know, I, I think that's, it's important. So if you're someone out there looking to join a network, the important thing here is make sure you have your own legal team, your own legal team, whether you're looking to join as an equity owner or as an employee, that is my critical advice that I give to everyone is you should have 
a legal representative who understands what you're doing. Now, it also helps that I have a good understanding of certain aspects of the legalities because part of doing your PhD is you're trained on the legal aspects of a number of things, including intellectual property, all that stuff. So you make sure that kind of thing is written in, understanding what it means to indemnify and be indemnified, et cetera, and always having an escape plan, I suppose. But no, I have never felt like I was in a position where I'd be stuck or where I'd have to just walk. Without discussing anything of, of your terms, but just in general for, for fellows to consider or, or young doctors or anyone thinking of starting to know, mm-hmm. what is some of the framework that they should make sure that you mentioned that they, they should have their legal team, but what are some concepts that they should really be yeah. prepared to understand? Well, you know, I think for a lot of people, especially those coming right out of fellowship or who are still very much early career, many times our only focus is how much is my paycheck? Because I've got loans to pay. I got bills to pay. And so it's actually important. And I try to impress on people who are early career, literally preparing to enter the field to understand that financially, you have to think bigger picture. So it's not just what am I going to get as my take home paycheck per month? That's important because you need to live. Don't get me wrong. But you also have to consider other things, which is what is the value of your work? Let's say you're joining a practice and you know, you're going to be helping to build something. There is something to the word sweat equity. It doesn't matter how much someone's telling you about what they're putting in. You have to know what the value of your work is and your effort and how much time that's going to take. You have to understand that you need to protect yourself on all levels when it comes to not just patient care, but any additional liability you may be taking on, whether it's a role, et cetera. If you're coming in, even if it's an already established practice and they're asking you to take on a directorship, recognize that administrative work is still work. And so while in our field, you know, at the end of the day, they're for profitability, they're looking at how many transfers, how many retrievals, et cetera. If you're taking on a director role, the time you spend away from doing all of the everyday bread and butter stuff, it still works and it has a value for the practices, continued success, for regulatory reasons, et cetera. You have to have a value to that. And one of the things I discovered, which is how I kept moving until I found myself the right team in terms of like lawyers, et cetera, is some of the people out there who are negotiating on our behalf as physicians have no concept of that part. And some people get really carried away with the paycheck and they're like, well, you're getting paid well for your basic job. What else do you need? But there are so many other things you have to look at to protect yourself. And it's not just a restrictive covenant, which I feel like is all people tell you about as a trainee is, you know, they talk about restrictive covenants, they talk about compensation, and some will talk about bonus structures that only have to do with physically patient care but none of the other things that are involved, including things like disability coverage and all that. I would be a bad fertility doctor because I only want to take on the cases that I know are going to be successful. I only want people to say these sorts of things about me and my company, like Greg in Chicago. Our resources um, are not endless. And I think that with Fertility Bridge, Um, there's a much deeper dive. Or Dr. Young in Iowa. I've gotten more positive feedback from patients from anything in the last 30 years of practice. Or Brad in Seattle. 
you have uh, multiple experts on your team and for you know a very small price to get that level of, of uh, consulting for just, just a uh, couple hours uh, would be really valuable. Okay, you get the idea. So this is how we set you up so you are 100% guaranteed to be successful in your goal over time. It's not a magic wand. Until you do this, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and definitely do not get in any long-term commitments or launch initiatives. You sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. You fill out your business needs profile. We establish your benchmarks and desired outcomes. Then we meet for our 90-minute consult. We provide you with business intel, revenue estimates, and a competitive overview of the field to facilitate the prioritization of your goals between your partners and leadership team. Then we have a 30-minute follow-up. We tell you exactly what you need to audit and strategize to build your plan. I'll also give you one big marketing idea that will make you say, damn, that's good. If we fail to do any of these things, we give you your money back because it's only $5.97 and because I need you to be successful because I need you to say all those really sweet things about me and my company. Maybe even a gem like this one from Holly and Dr. Hutchison from Arizona. If we didn't have Fertility Bridge, honestly, I think we would be getting close to there's no long-term commitment whatsoever, and there's a 100% money-back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. Is it okay if we conclude with talking about a topic that has nothing to do with DeNovo and nothing to do with leadership? It's just one I love yeah. to squeeze in in any single episode that I can. It's about choosing cities. Sure. Is that all right? Yeah. So anyone listening to this episode that tuned in to hear Dr. Dude talk about leadership versus influencership or what to consider when starting a DeNovo clinic, you can go ahead and tune out unless you're as into this as I am. And it's about choosing cities because you have told me a couple times that you love Rochester. The first time we exchanged uh, email conversation, you said you, you still consider it home, I believe you said. In, yes. in the beginning of, uh, before we started recording, you you mentioned that I, I just love Rochester. And, um, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't sound like it was on your sun list. To, to me, sun list means <laughs> somewhere, somewhere where it's sunny. So Correct. Uh, were you here? Were you in Rochester eight years? I spent eight years in Rochester, 2001 through 2009. I was there for eight years. That's right. So you, you, you loved it. Well, one, what did you love about it? So, you know, I, there's so much about Rochester that I loved. And I think the first disclosure is Rochester is the first place in the United States that I lived for longer than four years. So I think that's important to highlight. And maybe that's part of why it seems like home because it was some place where I really established some roots. But also, you know, I had my brother with me. So I was that unique medical student who helped to raise my teen brother at the time while I was in med school until he went off to college. So we really formed these familial bonds in Rochester. You know, him going to Brighton High School meant that we also worked with a lot of families who were just everyday people raising families, etc. And so I really developed this network through him being in school, but also my friends in graduate school, and then just that network growing. So I felt like I had family, I had a big community. Um, at the University of Rochester, uh, as you probably know, the medical school class size was never really greater than 100. And so it meant you really got to know all your classmates, you got to know your faculty. Um, doing my PhD work, you were in a lab of people who, that's, those are your people. 
And so, you know, with Rochester also about 15 to 25% of every graduating medical school class stays in Rochester for training and many of them stay on for the rest of their career. So it meant that even though when I started medical school, I started with the class of 2005, most of my classmates, a lot of them stayed on after they graduated that first graduating class. And so I had all these friends who stayed on and I could keep growing my family in terms of family bonds for the rest of my eight year tenure there. I'm, I'm digging into all of this because I, I bring it up whenever I can on the show because I'm so bullish about the smaller markets. Everybody knows I'm from Buffalo. I love Buffalo. Yes. It's my eternal hey, Buffalo. home. I'm, yes. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to die there. But right now, the reason why I'm staying here when I reference Rochester is because mm-hmm. this is where I am now. My girlfriend's yes. residency at your alma mater, not an OBGYN, but, yeah. uh, but she's in residence here, residency here. So we live right by Strong. <laughs> and uh, I do really like it. I love small cities. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. Many, people don't, mm-hmm. and I feel like there's such a quality of life for someone that that might be wanting to to if you can put yeah. up with six months of lousy weather. I think that's right. No, well, the weather. But that said, you know, like I tell people, my eight years there, I didn't hate the weather. Right. I never found myself hating Rochester weather because the people, the the events, you know. As a matter of fact, I didn't even have a problem with winter until I moved to Baltimore because they had a different approach to snow. You know, in Rochester, you had to really have a true icing outside for them to say, OK, the city's going to shut down. Yeah. You know, um, life just went on. I think in all of my eight years there, the university only canceled classes maybe two days once in eight years, two days total. And so, no, for me, I think also I like smaller cities, which is probably why, you know, I moved to like Vegas when I was choosing a city is I grew up in the Caribbean. I grew up on an island at the time of 30,000 people. It's now 60,000 people. But when I was growing up, there were 30,000 people. I grew up in a village with 52 households. So I like that sense of people knowing each other and people making eye contact and talking to each other and having that shared sense of community. And I liked that about Rochester. Um, I love that the University of Rochester also had a lot of things that allowed you as a student to get involved in the community. And so like, you know, as someone who was a math minor, I really wanted to keep teaching math when I was in medical school. So I taught math at the inner city you know tutoring and stuff we we did a lot of things that you probably wouldn't be able to do in other places because they're just so sprawling and distance and travel would take so much time so yes I mean I go back to Rochester when I can I stay in touch with all my friends and you know I love going to Rochester Buffalo Niagara Canada, you know, Toronto, um, because we used to drive to Toronto so often from Rochester. It's still a favorite place of mine. I'm proud on this because when I speak to a lot of fellows, like you said, a lot of fellows, they're just they're thinking of the debt and thinking of the salary. And then and then the other consideration that I see, hear them talking about often is the city. They want to be in New York, the Bay, Austin, yes. maybe 20 other cities. And I would mm-hmm. say 20 cities. You're, we're really seeing Pareto's rule there where 20 cities are taking, well, that's not even 20% of the cities, but they are probably yeah. picking up 80% of, of the fertility. The fellows who are graduating, yeah. And and mm-hmm. I, I, w- I would love for people to consider whether it's a Rochester or a Buffalo or a yeah. Cleveland or uh, mm-hmm. a other so many different, uh, 
Tucson, Arizona, Tulsa, yes. places like this, because, you know, the, the same things that you mentioned, we live right by the University of Rochester. And last night it was 75 degrees, which is normally not in, in, no, not in, not in November. But my girlfriend and I go for a bike ride along the Genesee River. Yes. The beautiful Rochester campus. And you see that you can see the city skyline from right there. Like, yes. I, there's just there's just so much here if you're so willing much. to 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 look past some of the or or if you're willing to forgo just some of the top things. That yeah. Also, it's a things. very collaborative city. And that's something I mean, so I've been I graduated from Rochester in 2009. This is the year 2020. Uh, COVID happens. And one of the first things that started, I started thinking about, well, oh, my gosh, there are these unique research questions you can ask. And so I reached out to my then PhD advisor, who's now the dean for research. So that probably helps. But I was like, hey, you know, I have some ideas. Do you know anyone there who's doing COVID or might have COVID tissue? And he was like, oh, absolutely. And, you know, within a few days, I was on Zoom calls, coming up with grant ideas and grant applications, et cetera. I'm in Las Vegas, mind you. They're in Rochester, New York. And it's the very thing I remembered from even when I was doing my PhD work, which is they're extremely collaborative. It's a great place to grow. You're nurtured. Um, you know, when I was in graduate, and sorry, in fellowship, I applied for a grant and I needed, to, it was a crowdfunding grant. And so I needed to practice my, for my grant pitch and all that stuff. I didn't practice that with people from Yale. I practiced that with my people from University of Rochester. They were on Zoom with me two Sundays in a row. And before that, they were reading over my grant for my application and so forth. And then they were on the phone with me two Sundays in a row on Zoom so I can do my pitch. I can prepare my pitch. I can get feedback about media presentation and pitching. And so... I think, you know, many people that I'm talking about Rochester, New York here, but I hear the same for a number of other cities around the country. And my hope is that the fellows who are listening consider that, you know, I know it's glitzy. Everybody wants to finish and go join the big practices we've heard about. We want to go work with the big people we've met at the, um, conferences. I would tell you the big people at the conferences will still know you if you're at other places doing amazingly well and your family's happy and schooling is great and cost of living is affordable. Um, for me, you know, I love New York City. I'll visit New York as many times as I can. But for me, what I really had concerns about was quality of life based on the quality I was looking for. I was concerned about the cost of living. I was concerned about how long my commute would be. And I'm saying all that as a single woman. I, I was concerned about all that, but, and I was like, I don't want to trade that, but I might be in a different mind space as well. I just wasn't interested in that kind of struggle for someone coming out of fellowship to start and having to spend hours commuting. That wasn't an interest for me at all. If anyone wants to, to hear more about that, if they want to hear more about leadership versus, uh, versus influencership, or starting a de novo clinic and what that leadership role is like. We're going to link to all your info in the show notes. Dr. Cindy Duke, thanks so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.